My name is Steve. I'm the assistant pastor here. Uh, if you're visiting with us, I'd love to meet you afterwards, and uh, we're very happy that you're here. Um, we are uh, in the middle of a study in Luke, and for a couple of guys that have attention spans the length of Brian and I's, it's pretty amazing that we're still going, right? I think we've been doing this almost all year, and we're going to keep going uh, through the rest of the year. So uh, it's been, for me, an incredible study. Luke is one of those gospels that if you've grown up in the church tends to be pretty familiar. And yet I feel like every passage we've come to, there's just been this huge, almost earth-shattering truth that I haven't seen before. And we're looking this morning at the last parable that Luke records for us in the journey that Jesus is making to Jerusalem. So he still has more stories to tell us once he gets there. But as I've mentioned a few times before, the the journey motif in Luke is very important because Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem to die. And this is the very last story that he tells that Luke records for us in that journey. So we can already tell that it's going to be rather important. Let me read our passage and pray for us and we'll get started. This is the gospel reading and it's from Luke chapter 19. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king, and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however. And returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his mina away from him, And give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I ask that you would be present in power in this place this morning. We need a God of power because our fears are so overwhelming at times that we fail to see your love and we fail to trust you and we need you to overpower our own self-consciousness, our own fears, our own self-indulgence. I ask that you would be in this place speaking words of love to us this morning as your word is preached. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, given that rip-roaring ending there of the parable, I think you can see that this bumps up against some, some of our cultural ideas about who Jesus is 
And we've seen this several times already, and we don't really have time this morning to dive into it again and see just how judgment works in the world and in God's kingdom. But we do uh, need this reminder. We need to be careful not to pigeonhole Jesus into some preformed image that we have of him. And I think that if we allow it, this parable is going to speak to us. And we'll not only learn something about the kingdom of God, but we'll learn something about the nature of God as well which, if you were with us last week, is exactly what we saw at the end of our story about Zacchaeus. As Jesus unmasked his missional objectives to seek and save the lost, we were given a window into who God is. Well, this parable is told right on the heels of that Zacchaeus story. So at the very beginning of our passage, when it says, while they were listening to this, this was what Jesus was saying about Zacchaeus at the end of our last story. And Luke does a couple of strange things in this parable. First, he gives us a very clear reason for why Jesus is telling it to begin with. Now, in the past, Luke hasn't been quite so bold about what Jesus is up to, but here we're told a very clear reason why Jesus tells this story. And then Jesus and Luke, writing it down, go on to arrange a parable that really takes the shape of more of an allegory than a parable. You'll see what I mean in a moment. So we're going to look at this parable by looking at who's who, a wet blanket banker, and betting the farm. Let's begin with who's who. As I mentioned, this tale takes on more of an allegorical flavor than a parable because many of the details in this story actually point to something, whereas most parables are told to kind of have one main point that has deeper meaning. This one has a lot of kind of smaller details that point to something larger. So I'm going to give you just a quick sort of scattershot telling of who's who and what's what so we can start to understand what Jesus is doing here. We have to remember what Luke tells us at the beginning. Jesus is telling this parable as a corrective to people who misunderstand the kingdom of God. So here we go. Jesus is the nobleman who goes into a far country. The far country points to Jesus going to death and then beyond, as we see in Luke's sequel, that he goes from resurrection and ascends back to the Father, back to the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realm until the end of all things. And in this far land, Jesus is made king. But before he goes, he gives to his servants coins. Now, in ancient literature, the number 10 signifies wholeness. So the idea that the master in this parable gives out 10 coins to 10 servants is the idea that Jesus is giving gifts to all of his disciples. To all who are part of the church, he gives the coins of faith, mercy, love, and the gospel message. And then the the servants are are called to trade, to work with the coins. And putting them to work, then, is to do the work of the kingdom. We'll see more on that in just a moment. But then in this parable, as we line it up with what Jesus is telling his disciples about life in the kingdom, is that there are other subjects who hated Jesus and refused to have him be king over them. It's one thing when you bet on the wrong horse, you end up losing money. But when you bet on the wrong guy to be your leader, you stand to lose a lot more than that. These other subjects reject the kingship of Jesus. They represent in Luke's gospel the Jewish religious leadership And while there may be ties to a further judgment that Luke is maybe pointing to down the road, he has a very clear idea that right now there is a group of people that are supposed to be God's subjects that are failing to do so, and they become so antagonistic to the ministry of Jesus that they actually end up calling down his blood on their own heads, as we'll see in just a few more chapters. So let's put this all together real quick. The people around Jesus had this idea that when God's kingdom would come, all their enemies would be judged. And through very right-handed, political power sorts of ways, Israel would be set up as the new political powerhouse in the land. 
They would be the ruler. They would be the vindicated people of God who would finally have beaten the Romans at their own game. So even people like the disciples that, that actually believe that Jesus is the Messiah, they still have this very clear idea that him or someone like him is going to lead them to this militaristic political victory over their enemies. And in fact, in Luke's sequel to this, in the book of Acts, after Jesus has died and come back to life, one of the first questions his disciples say is, oh man, we totally got distracted by that whole dying, coming back to life thing. When's the kingdom coming? We can't remember. The coming of the kingdom in a a very clear, powerful, political way was so tied in with Jewish life at the time that, that even when someone comes back from the dead, this is still the first question to ask. And yet, what we're finding out is that the kingdom of God is not going to come in a right-handed, political, powerful way. And so Jesus tells this story to correct the people around him. And the story is basically this. Folks, I'm going away, far away for a while. And while I'm away, I'm going to be made king. But it's not all going to be roses. There There are some people who don't want me to be king. And they will clamor and clang for anyone else but me, but my kingship is going to happen. And it will end up resulting in a clash of wills. But in the meantime, while I'm gone, take these coins, take these gifts, the gift of the Spirit, take the gospel message and the message of my kingship, the message of my mercy, and work with it. Multiply it. So really what we see in this parable is three types of people. There are those who serve the king. There are those who hate the king and refuse his kingship. And there are those who distrust the king. And so when we have an example of three servants, we see that three is a very typical storytelling pattern in ancient literature. And it's really just to give us insight into two of those three people. We're going to look mostly at the third servant, the servant who distrusts the king. And this servant I've called the wet blanket banker. After the first two servants come to the king and say, look at what your coin has earned, and the king encourages them, and he shows them how their faithfulness begets more responsibility, the parable seems to have this very positive upswing, right? Here these guys have had a good investment. They've done well. They've done what the king has wanted. We've almost forgotten about the enemies because Jesus is so happy when he returns. And then the third servant comes along. Sir, here is your coin, he says. I've kept it in my wet blanket bank because, honestly, I was afraid of you. I know you're a hard man. You take out what you don't put in. You reap what you don't sow. And the master responds with some burning sarcasm. Really? You seem to know quite a bit about me. I'm a hard man, am I? I get out what I don't put in, do I? I reap what I don't sow? Interesting ideas. Out of curiosity, if that's really how you feel about me, if that's what you know about me, Why didn't you act accordingly and at least put the coin in the bank so I could get a small bit of interest? And then the master commands that the coin be taken away and given to the guy with 10. And then when everyone says, why give it to him? He gives an answer that doesn't really seem to make much sense and then orders his enemies to be slaughtered in his presence. Now, if you're like me, sorry if you are, (laughs) if you're like me and you read this story, you start to think, okay, contestant number three is actually right. I mean, he kind of gets what he thought he was going to get. The master comes down pretty hard on him. And, and what's more, not only does, does the master seem like the sort of boss that we should all be afraid of, but he seems kind of unpredictable. 
The first two guys get commended, and then the last guy, it's not like he lost the coin or something, but he gets his ears blistered. So what's going on? If you'll allow me, I'm going to start with a premise, and then we're going to work our way back to try and understand this sort of conundrum. And the premise is this. The third servant is condemned by his own fear and mistrust of the master. And if fear and mistrust of the master is what's being condemned in this parable, then our telling of it should not cause us to be afraid of and have mistrust for the master. Did you catch that? The third servant is being condemned because he's afraid and doesn't trust his master's goodness. And if the point of the parable is that that sort of idea is condemned, then our telling of it should not cause us to live in fear and mistrust of the master's goodness. The error of the third servant was in his assumption that the master was a hard, mean, angry man who would come down on him if he did the wrong thing with the coin. And so what our translators have tried to do, and what I've tried to do in translating the master's condemning words to the third servant, is to get across the fact that the master is being sarcastic. He's not agreeing with the servant's assessment of himself. Rather, he is basically giving over to the servant the servant's own self-fulfilling prophecy. What we're hearing from Jesus is that the third servant's loyalty runs only as deep as his fear. The third servant has no love or affection toward his master. He has no faith, no trust in the master, and he has failed to truly understand the gospel and the freedom that is found in the gospel. Now, it would be really, really easy for us theological types to, at this very moment, get distracted by wondering, well, was the third servant a true disciple was, was he actually saved, and can you lose your salvation, or was he never really saved? What does it mean that he had a coin, and now he loses it? These are great questions. They're questions that I think about when I read this story, and they have important answers. But to follow them right now, I think, is going to actually pull us away from the center of Jesus' critique. And it's actually a critique that is heating up on the heels of those of us that like to ask those theological-type questions. It's headed straight for us because it is so frighteningly easy for us to know about God, to learn about God, think about God, reason about God, talk about God, read about God, write about God, and sing about God, and not really trust God. The third servant was a theologian, albeit a bad one. But he reasoned with himself about who God is and allowed his reasoning to eclipse faith. If you grew up in the church, And especially if you find yourself sitting somewhere within the label of evangelicalism, I I think we're starting to kind of circle toward the center of Jesus' critique for people like us. Which is to say that in the church tradition that a good amount of us come from, we have begun to define faith as correct thinking. We define faith as right doctrine. Now, don't hear something that I'm not saying. Doctrine is absolutely important. Right thinking is absolutely important. In fact, we find it so important here that in a moment we're going to stand up and recite one of the longest Christian creeds imaginable because we find that content to faith is extremely important. You have to know what you believe. But when faith moves away from trust, we have a problem. The master wants us to trust his goodness, not reason ourselves toward fear. He wants us to rest in his love, not fear his rejection. 
The master wants us to lie down and die to our trembling attempts to get him to like us and instead allow ourselves, our rotten, unworthy, horrible selves to be smothered in the bear hug of a father who is welcoming back prodigal children. And we must point out again that as Jesus is telling this story, he is ever closer to Jerusalem, ever closer to his death, and it's a death that transforms enemies into children, failures into family, and sinners into saints. How can we not trust that he's good? Last Christmas, I was at a friend's Christmas party. It was a company party, so I had no business being there, but I was really glad that I got invited. And uh, he was doing a casino night sort of theme and it was really fun. He, he came in and he gave us the, the coins, the, the tokens, you know, that we could play with. And then at the end of the night, if however many uh, chips you had or whatever, it could get turned into raffle tickets and you could win big items. All right. I sort of have ADD. So I, I, playing cards, I mean, after like five minutes, I'm so bored. I just, I would lose intentionally. I can't stand it. And I'm really just pretty horrible at gambling altogether, which is probably a good thing. I just stay away from it. Uh, but here I was given chips that weren't mine. And my initial reaction was to just sit on them because I knew that if I played, I was going to lose them all and then I would have no shot at winning anything. But another friend of mine was, was at the craps table. And so I went over because I needed someone to talk to and I just decided to start copying what he did. And so he kind of taught me some things, all of which I've forgotten. And I started to play and I kept playing and it was really fun. And I ended up winning something from the raffle ticket because I decided to play with those chips. And it was when I remembered that I was at a party and I was given something that I didn't even deserve in the first place that I decided I can have fun with these. I can play. I can bet the farm and not worry. This parable is about more than just us as individuals moving from fear to trust. It is also about uh, the church the mission, because as I said in this parable, is, end, is beginning in the same breath that the Zacchaeus story ended. And if you were with us last week, you remember that I compared the love of Jesus to a rushing river, meant not for our capture, but for us to be soaked in it as it works through us outward to other people, because the mission of Jesus is the mission of the church, which is to seek and save the lost. And that, that same love, that idea of the water is now being placed into the idea of the coins. So if you're a part of Jesus' church and if you're a part of in town, we're not supposed to hang on to the coins, whispering ourselves to sleep at night, hoping that the boogeyman doesn't come and steal them from us while we're asleep. And this comes right back to what we've been talking about for a while and hopefully what we'll hear more about next week as we have that meeting of our ministry overview. What kind of church are we going to be? We have been entrusted with the message that Jesus is king that his kingdom is beginning to spread throughout the entire world like yeast through bread dough. And we can look out into a culture that seems to know less and less about this King Jesus, a culture that seems to understand less and less about us, and we could become afraid. We could be afraid that we might lose the truth in a postmodern world. We might become afraid that we could lose our holiness if we associate too closely with immoral people. We could become afraid that if we use the coins wrongly, they will be taken away from us and we could just hide them in a handkerchief and wait. Or, with hearts racing and knees knocking, we could venture into the future, 
into the city, into the world, betting the entire farm, and actually taking the message of enemies reconciled and sinners saved seriously. And as we step into that world, we step into it with an abiding, deep trust that the master is good. The master is loving. The master is in control, and he wants us to risk. He wants us to dream. He wants us to work with him. And when the king returns, we can say to him, look at what your coins have done, and then just rest in the warmth of his smile. But we can only do that if we actually trust the king. We have to really trust his love and his goodness in order to live like that, in order to be a church like that. And because I have found in my own life that that sort of trust, a trust that allows us freedom from fear, is so incredibly difficult, I'm going to end this morning a little bit differently. I'm actually going to read a a parable remix that I think will help us understand this a little bit better. And this comes from Peter Lightheart's book, The Baptized Body. So if anybody wants to come down, you can. We'll do story time. You guys can come down to the steps if you want. Once there were three young men who served a great king. On the recommendation of the crown prince, each was brought to the palace, given a ritual bath, clothed in the garments of a page, and placed in the king's service. Pause. I should have mentioned, the first time I tried to read this out loud to my wife, I sobbed incoherently. You all know I'm a crier, so if it starts to happen, somebody can volunteer to come read the rest. Back to the story. The king accepted these three pages warmly and treated them as if they were his own sons. When he met with them, he told them the history of the kingdom and through authorized tutors taught them the ways of the court. As he spoke, they not only learned how to behave as courtiers, but also grew to love and trust the wise king more and more. Often they served table at royal feasts, but occasionally the king would invite them to sit down and join the merriment. Life in the court was abundant with joy and peace. As the three young men grew in skill, they accompanied the king on military campaigns and diplomatic missions. Each fought bravely, and through their prowess and leadership, the king came to rule a larger and larger territory. One of the young young men became a herald, and the king sent him on diplomatic missions and trusted him to negotiate with rulers in the surrounding countries. The three became very famous in the kingdom. But the three were not all of one mind about the king and the privilege of being in his service. The first servant was, in fact, a spy for a neighboring kingdom. He entered the king's service in order to disrupt his court and undermine his plans for conquest. He listened to the king and to maintain his cover, conformed his conduct to the king's desires, but inwardly he chafed when the king spoke. Instead of growing in his love and devotion to the king, he found the king's words and habits increasingly irksome. For some years, the king suspected him of treachery and was cautious about sending him on royal missions, yet the king continued to show him every kindness and treated him with such warmth that no observer could have guessed the king's suspicions. Eventually, the servant was discovered sneaking out of the palace by night to send a report to his true master. Grieved and angry, the king ordered him to be imprisoned and later signed an execution order. The second servant had come from a poor and insignificant family and was delighted to be a member of the court. He learned all he could about court life and fighting and looked forward with great eagerness to the times when the king would invite him to sit at his table and share a meal. He trusted and loved the king, and that love and trust seemed to be deepening with every passing month. 
but it did not last. The servant began to turn against the king when he accompanied the first treacherous servant on a diplomatic mission. As they traveled, the first servant spoke about the king's conquests. First, he only asked questions, but soon he made bold assertions about the king's cruelty. The second servant defended the justice of the king, but through a combination of lies, cleverly chosen omissions, and misleading innuendos, the treacherous servant was able to shake his friend's confidence. As suspicions grew in the second servant, the king's words no longer sounded as innocent or wise as they had once. And the servant began to wonder what the king really wanted when he invited him in, when he invited the servants to dine with him. He thought of talking with the king about the first servant's charges, but when the first servant was imprisoned, it seemed that all the suspicions had proven true, and he was afraid to reveal himself. Late one night, he slipped out of the palace and ran away to a neighboring court where he served the rest of his life. The third servant was at first the least promising of the three, He had no lack of natural skill and intelligence, but there was a belligerent streak that led to continuous strife with the other courtiers and often with the king himself. He was initially suspicious of the king's favor, questioned the king's advice, and ate little when he sat with a surly frown at the king's table. Yet whenever he failed at some task or was caught in some fight or insulted the king, the king showed superhuman forbearance. He forgave him completely and continued to teach and talk to him. During the second year of his service, the servant's heart began to melt, and he began to delight in the king's company, his words, and his table. He learned to show the same patience and kindness toward his fellow courtiers that the king had shown him. He served the king loyally for many decades, became a great man at court, fought and won many battles for the king, including one against an opposing army led by the fallen second servant who had left the court. When he became an old man, he taught the younger courtiers the way of the court, He had a special gift for bringing unruly pages into line. When he died, full of years, he received a lavish state funeral and was greatly grieved and missed by the court. Shortly before he died, a third servant lay on his bed. The spring shone through the great window of his room in the palace. His grandson, now a page to that very same ageless king, was sitting beside him. His mind wandered, as old men's minds do, to his youth and to the two pages who had begun their service with him. But the first servant was never a servant of the king, his grandson was saying. He didn't really know the king. Not as he should have, certainly. But the king shared with him as lavishly as he shared with the rest of us, said the grandfather. He sat at the king's table, learned from the king, wore the king's livery, carried his banners. He lived as abundantly as we all did, and all the while, There was treachery in his heart. And the second servant was just like the first. He he too turned traitor, said the grandson. Oh, no, no, no. His story is quite different. The end is the same, surely, but the path toward that end is a different story altogether. You see, he loved the king and trusted him. He loved the king better than I. At the beginning? Yes, at the beginning. If the king had passed judgment during that first year, I'm sure I would have been cast out of the palace And the second servant would have been honored above all the servants of the house. I am happy the king does not pass judgment so quickly. I made myself such an annoyance. I still feel pain at the memory of it, though the king seems to have forgotten it completely. But how could that servant turn so completely? Surely he knew the king's spirit, said the young man. The old man smiled. You are very young. Everything looks plain very neat and clean to a young man, but it was not 
neat and clean. Somehow, the second servant pushed down the king's spirit. Something happened deep in his soul, and somehow he forgot all the kindness, all the laughter, all the words, all the feasts. He began to suspect the king's kindness. He began to think the king was laying traps for him, and so he foolishly thought he would lay a trap for the king. The bright afternoon deepened to crimson. Neither the old man nor his grandson spoke for a long time. Evening sounds and the aroma of the early honeysuckle came through the window on the cooling air. How could they have done it? Asked the young man at last. They had everything they could have asked for. An abundant life in service of the king. What were they looking for? Breathing heavily, his grandfather answered, I do not know. It is a great mystery, and yet it happened. The grandson shivered. It is very frightening, he said. What is? It's frightening to think that someone who received so much, someone who was so loyal, could turn so completely, and I'm afraid that I might do the same. The old man reached and touched his grandson's hand. Do not fear. The king will keep you. Stay near to him. Trust what he says. Do not be suspicious of him. Enjoy his feasts. Spend time with the other pages and the old courtiers. You wear the livery of a royal servant, the sign of his favor. Keep faith with the king, and all will be well. And it was. Friends, keep faith with the king. Have an abiding, deep trust in the goodness of your master. And the love of this church will flood out into this city in ways that we have never seen before. Let's pray together. Jesus, as we come to your table, I ask that your love would overwhelm us. That even if it's just a seed the size of a mustard seed, that we would begin to be changed people as we grow in our trust of you. If we have become too consumed with right doctrine and knowledge about you and not consumed enough with eager and utter reliance upon you, I ask that as we come to your meal to eat on your body and drink of your blood, that that would change, that we would begin to have a deeper trust in your goodness and love. We ask this in your name. Amen.